Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I've been doing film reviews since 1996, and you can check out all of my written work there at Quipster.net. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. And while you're there, I do encourage you to check out the link to my other podcast, where I look at brand new movies that are out in theaters, VOD, streaming services, not so much coming out here during 2020 so it's on a bit of a hiatus but i will take requests for films that don't occur in the 1980s if you want to write to me you can find my contact information at my website that's at quipster.net today i'm going to be getting into the second of this three-part series looking at science fiction films of the 1980s that feature people who are working under the ocean in a near futuristic setting The previous episode covered Leviathan, and this film I'm going to be talking about today came out the same year as Leviathan, in 1989. In fact, it came out a couple of months before Leviathan, and they both kind of came out for a reason that I will get into in a moment. It wasn't just a coincidence that these two films featuring very similar subject matter would come out. Deep Star Six is the film I'm going to be talking about today. It is an R-rated film. It does have violence, some gore, and language. The runtime is an hour and 38 minutes. The cast, mostly not big stars, but they are Nancy Everhard, Greg Evigan, Miguel Ferrer, Tarian Black, Nia Peoples, Matt McCoy, Cindy Pickett, Marius Wires, and Elia Baskin. The director for Deep Star Six is Sean S. Cunningham. And the screenplay credited to Louis Abernathy and Jeff Miller. Now, if you heard my review of Leviathan, you know that that film really got fast-tracked because of James Cameron's The Abyss that was coming out in 1989. There were a few studios that had this on their mind because they thought that James Cameron's next film would be a blockbuster. So they wanted to strike while the iron was hot and to get a similar property out into theaters before Cameron's would come out while the public's appetite was ravenous for that material. So Cameron had announced that he was going to be making The Abyss after Aliens, and there was a lot of mystery surrounding the production of The Abyss. People knew that it was going to be underwater, but they speculated what kind of actual movie was going to be there because he had already made The Terminator, he had made Aliens, so they assumed that The Abyss was going to follow in that natural trend to be intense, to be this very highly commercial science fiction horror hybrid. So thinking that this was going to be the next big thing and the production schedule was going to be a long one for The Abyss, knowing James Cameron, a lot of these film studios wanted to get to work. They wanted to come out with their own version of Alien underwater in anticipation that they could fill the void of expectation in the interim. So around this time, There were a couple of writing partners, Louis Abernathy and Jeff Miller. They developed this underwater terror idea that they had into a script. They constructed their story as kind of an underwater riff on the 1951 version of The Thing from Another World. The plot for their story, entitled Deep Star Six, it involves this team of 11 scientists who are working for the U.S. Navy. They're constructing a facility stationed six miles beneath the surface of the ocean, for the launching of nuclear missiles, they soon discover that they're building atop what appears to be a vast underground cavern, something that they can't really build missile silos above, so the Navy might scrap their project if they don't complete their work before their six-month stint is up, so they have to destroy the cavern, but they discover that once they do that, they're not alone down there. There's some sort of strange and massive prehistoric 
arthropod creature that begins to attack their undersea vehicles there. A lot more to the story than that, but that's basically the gist. Now, Abernathy and Miller, they contemplated making Deep Star 6 themselves. They wanted to do it, if they were going to make it at all, it was going to be very cheap for under $200,000. They were going to try to self-finance that through local investors, dentists and doctors and whatnot. But when the smaller movie studios were actively seeking underwater horror stories like The Abyss, at least what they thought was going to be The Abyss, the script for Deep Star 6 came into demand and Miller and Abernathy made their sale to Carroll Co., and they were going to join with their domestic distribution partners, TriStar Pictures, for domestic distribution. Now, for their alien set under the water, Deep Star 6, it began production almost concurrently with The Abyss in 1987. And James Cameron just so happened to have been good friends with Louis Abernathy. They both had a passion for scuba diving and went out on trips together to do just that. Abernathy told Cameron about his sale, and Cameron expressed that he had some concerns about having two similar films made at the same time in the same year, so he asked Abernathy if he could hold off until he gets his movie out. But Abernathy, he needed this break. He had been languishing with Jeff Miller. They were both still working in a copy shop to try to pay the rent while they tried to break into the film business. So he decided that he needed to continue making this feature while he had the opportunity. And subsequently, he and Cameron had a falling out of their friendship. Now, their estrangement lasted all the way up till 1995. And that's when Cameron started to make Titanic. That was this film idea that was originally suggested before their falling out to Cameron by Louis Abernathy himself. So Cameron based a small role in Titanic on Abernathy named Louis Bodine, one of the crewmates of Brock Lovett, the Bill Paxton character. But when Cameron could not find the right actor to play that role, he instead had Abernathy come in, even though he was not a professional actor. He essentially portrayed himself as Louis Bodine. Now, going back to Deep Star Six, when Sean Cunningham, the producer for the House series of horror films, he got involved with Deep Star Six in August of 1987, and that's when things really began to change. And Cunningham worked with the screenwriters, and they spent the next several months researching what kind of monstrous creature that they could imagine living in a cave under the bottom of the ocean. So they started researching, pouring through books, watching videos, and any other kind of material that they borrowed from places like the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History or the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. They read all of this material for ideas on the anatomy and behavior of what would become their monster. And as they began to conceive of how they were going to make their movie, the screenwriters, they had to perform several rewrites to develop more thrills throughout their story that would draw in the audience. Cunningham did not want Deep Star 6 to be just a horrific monster movie. That would be boring. So he wanted more emphasis on the personal relationships of the characters and the history among them. So he envisioned Deep Star 6 as alien if it took place within the submarine adventure film known as Das Boot, giving the film an adventure genre tone for the first half instead of just this bleak horror throughout. He felt that audiences would be much more interested in what happens underwater because most humans, the vast majority of humans, have never been into outer space. So all of these science fiction films made solely about some alien creature on a spaceship was expected, but 
everybody has experienced the terrifying nature of being submerged in water. It doesn't have to be the ocean. We just know what it's like to be dangerously in water, whether it's the pool or a river or what have you. We all find the potential for drowning due to some issue or another, getting entangled in something or some technical issue to be very scary as well. So they were going to up the ante by having mishaps occur. Through their story, the characters would try to fix one mishap and that would cause them to miss a series of others that could make their situation escalate into thrills and suspense and it would all build to a fever pitch by the time the monster finally comes into play. Now, during this revision period... They also changed the story around several times, including there was one revision that they did where they chose a non-linear structure. But they started going back to basics in the end, and they built up these characters and their dilemmas prior to throwing this monster at them to overcome. Now, the budget for Deep Star 6 was going to be relatively low, so they concocted a series of dangers to show how dangerous it is for humans to live in this hostile underwater environment long-term. Now, the monster itself, Cunningham knew was not going to be scary to most seasoned horror sci-fi moviegoers. But what would be scary would be what it does to these characters. If the audiences came to care about these characters, it would be scary if they made the film right. The monster, in Cunningham's mind, was a metaphor. It was death before one's time. It was coming to get these human characters. You know, we all as humans try to avoid an untimely death throughout our lives. That's a universal fear, and that's what's presented by the monster in Deep Star 6. So once they hammered out the screenplay to their satisfaction, they started looking for a director. And the first director that they wanted to work with was Robert Harmon. He was known for directing another chilling horror-tinged thriller in the 1980s called The Hitcher. Now, Harmon was thought of as somebody who could provide a lot of creepy moments and some genuine suspense, but he dropped out, unfortunately, because he had another film idea that he had been passionately trying to bring about. It was beginning to move forward again, and he wanted to pursue that to try to make into a movie instead, although it never really materialized. So Cunningham went back to the drawing board. He went back to the studio's list of approved directors, but all of the people that were on the list either were not interested in making the film or they would not be available in time to assure that Deep Star 6 was going to be in theaters before the Abyss and all of the other competitors who were trying to beat them to the punch. Cunningham felt that if they could not be first, this film just should not be made. So Abernathy at that time, he offered to direct himself, but Cunningham told Abernathy that they would never get the funding if they were putting in a first-time director with absolutely no experience. Cunningham did give Abernathy, by the way, a chance later as a director for House 4 several years later, but with no better options in sight, Cunningham, who had some clout as a director before he directed most famously Friday the 13th, the first one in the series, he decided to step in as the director to what he would later call the most difficult production of his career. So with Cunningham at the helm, the studio put the production cost at an estimated budget of $8 million, which was not a lot to play with if you were going to do an adequate underwater science fiction horror adventure. Now, the water action was done in a tank that measured about 8 feet high and about 48 feet in diameter. It was placed in an abandoned printing warehouse located in Marina del Rey, California. There were other interiors that were done using a vacant former Smart and Final market in Santa Monica. Not really as good as making it in the studio, but, you know, for the price, it had to be done. 
The challenge for the production designer, John Reinhardt, that was brought in was in creating sets that could be filmed without water and then withstand water being pumped in at a rapid rate day after day. And then that set was going to be pulled out of the water to film in again for more dry scenes, so to speak. The production team designed these sets to fit within the space of their tank. So the water would have to come in or come out depending on whether they were being flooded during any particular scene. They created barges to hold equipment that was not supposed to be submerged, and the members of the crew floated around on inner tubes to try to stay close, but not get things such as scripts and other paperwork into the water. Now, some of the team had to be in the pool every day for weeks, sometimes wearing wetsuits for 12 hours a day or longer. So fatigue did set in, and the actors also spent up to 12 hours a day for 10 weeks in and around water in this very claustrophobic environment. There wasn't even enough room around them to put down such things as a, a cup of coffee, and that grew very monotonous, and it proved very physically demanding for everybody involved. Now, as for the casting, Greg Evigan he did this film while he was on hiatus from his TV show, My Two Dads. Now, older TV viewers like me probably remember Evigan from BJ and the Bear, but he does fit this hunky lead role actor, I suppose, but not in a very charismatic, cinematic way. It does make you wonder if somebody was watching My Two Dads and assumed that, hey, if Paul Reiser could do so well in Aliens, maybe his co-star on My Two Dads could be just as good in this alien clone. Nancy Everhart, she was a TV actress who made a push to be in feature films in the late 1980s, but she made some unfortunate choices, though. She appeared the same year, 1989, in this Dolph Lundgren version of The Punisher, as well as the wholly forgotten Jan Michael Vincent horror flick called Demonstone, and that lack of success with all of these movies caused her return to television as the better path moving forward. Torian Black, that's not his real name, his real name is Herbert Middleton Jr., but he changed his name to Torian Black because his astrological sign is a Taurus, and of course he's black. So Black complained that his character died halfway. He noted that the sole black character in horror films always seems to be the person who dies, and usually dying, saving the white characters. And that's it's an aspect I talked about briefly that was brought up by Ernie Hudson for Leviathan that was released two months later, which also needlessly had its sole black character deemed as expendable at the climax of the film, angering some moviegoers at the time. So somebody pointed out to Torian Black that the white captain in Alien, played by Tom Skerritt, also died halfway through the movie, so it was not necessarily a racial situation, but Black dismissed this because he stated that Yafik Kato's character dies in Alien, trying to save the white characters. So his assertion still stood, and it stood for a long time, for many years, as one of these very disturbing tropes for these kinds of horror-based films. But as a favor to a longtime member of his crew, Chris Wallace, who had in his employ visual effects supervisor for Deep Star 6, Jim Isaac, Wallace agreed to come in and do preliminary designs for the creature that they would come to call Buffy behind the scenes, kind of like they called the shark Bruce behind the scenes for Jaws. Now, to bring Buffy to life, Wallace recommended makeup effects marvel Mark Shostrom. Shostrom was hesitant to take on such a large project, but he found himself growing excited after seeing Wallace's maquette of his creature. And Shostrom used Wallace's design as a guide, but he did change the structure somewhat and the color to what he felt might work best for this production. And what resulted was kind of like a mammoth-sized crab-like creature. It was 22 feet long. It was about 700 pounds when it was wet. It needed airbags to be placed within it to help it 
give it some float instead of sinking all the way to the bottom of the tank. So in addition, there was a stump person that was housed within its hollow interior to move it quickly and to lift it to break the water surface. And the mechanical creature also had about 25 moving parts to it that required about a dozen technicians to operate thoroughly. But it was complicated because of the size, because they had to have enough room not only for the monster, but for all of the actors around it and the production crew, and to also keep everything that was supposed to be out of sight of the cameras out of sight. And that proved to be a very big challenge, given the limited amount of space, because sometimes required the bulk of the day to get just one sequence right. So to get around this, they had to build parts of the monster separately on the screen, which is why we rarely see the full creature in all its ugly glory within the runtime of Deep Star 6. Now, for the cinematography, Cunningham brought in his friend and frequent collaborator, Mac Alberg. As the script was a bit dense, Cunningham worked with Alberg to try to find ways to keep their story very fast-paced. Cunningham grew up in the world of theater, and he knew that stage productions regularly rehearsed their beats to try to make everything happen very fast and on cue, and that would be very exciting to the audience. So he wanted to winnow down the film to just to hit those beats early, hit them often, and hit them in very timely fashion. He did not want audiences to be able to catch their breath. But movies do differ from theater because theater productions have the benefit of audience reactions as they perform and they can make their adjustments accordingly. But movies don't have that audience reaction as they're making it. They often also shoot out of continuity. So it's really hard to know what the pace is going to be at the time that they're making the film. So to make sure that things stayed very fast, Cunningham had Alberg shoot all of the scenes that he could at 22 frames per second instead of the usual 24 frames per second, and that would ensure that things would be faster when they played them back at the normal speed of 24, but not so quickly that audiences could really detect it. So in addition to that, there was technology that existed so that they could lower the tone of each actor's voice so that they would seem normalized when they played that at a faster speed. There were some scenes that were done in 24 frames per second, uh, specifically the ones involving computer screens or other electronic displays because everything needed to stay in sync. So those couldn't be done at a fast rate, but everything else was shot just a little bit slower so that it would play fast for audiences. Now, for the score, Cunningham enlisted the services of his favorite collaborative composer, Henry Manfredini. Manfredini famously worked with Cunningham, delivering the memorable music for his Friday the 13th and most of Cunningham's horror productions since. Manfredini here, he was happy to take on Deep Star 6 because this was going to allow him to break out of being pigeonholed into scoring only slasher movies, which he had grown quite bored of doing. There's only so many ways he could pretty much find music to be doing the same thing. He was feeling confined to performing these old riffs on each picture. So Manfredini was very excited, and he also had more money to put together a bigger orchestra than he had used in the film before, and he considers the score that he did for Deep Star 6 to be one of his best works in his career. The finale for Deep Star 6 was shot at Falls Lake. That's a, a section of Universal Studios that contained two wave machines and was also used for parts of Jaws the Revenge. To control the lighting and the variances in weather, they used a painted backdrop measuring 200 feet wide and about 75 feet high to make it look like the monster and the actors were out there on the open ocean. A lot of people do detect the false background there, if they're looking for it anyway. And that brings some artifice and the look of cheapness for some, I suppose. Now, as far as how I feel about Deep Star 6, I would say 
It is made with a degree of competence, but I do think that it has a very long setup. It's a lot of genre cliches. It goes on for about an hour, maybe even longer than an hour, before we see the creature that they're supposed to fight for the climax, and that's followed by this horror that reveals all of that time that they spent trying to develop all of these characters and all of these complicated situations. It is all for naught, because it's just not any more exciting at that point. It's shocking, sure, because the gore just automatically ramps up, but most of the deaths in Deep Star 6 are not directly due to this beast, but they come more from Darwin Award-worthy acts that are performed by these engineers who don't seem very much brighter than your average Joe. And and this ensemble of actors, they feel like they're playing more for a television production, maybe because most of them come from the world of television. So they aren't really that fun to watch interacting as an ensemble. I think one actor does manage to come out better than the others. Miguel Ferrer came to give this film his all, and he's so emotive, though, compared to the rest of the actors, it can come across as hammy, maybe intentionally so, because I think that Miguel Ferrer figured he was in a pretty bad movie. In fact, during the film's promotion, Ferrer was spotted at a screening laughing derisively at Deep Star 6 during a press screening, and then after the film was over, he bolted for the exit so he would avoid being recognized or even having to talk to anybody about it. He would later, in interviews, refer to Deep Star 6 as a, quote, very, very bad movie. Now, the aesthetics of Deep Star 6 are not particularly impressive either. It has only a handful of locations and this very narrow sense of space amid lots of blinking electronic displays. They did want a claustrophobic look to show that the elements are the biggest enemy in this film because there's no place that they can escape, but it doesn't make for an appealing or riveting movie to watch. And the graphics of the sonar system is a real shortcoming for this film, considering how much time we spend looking at this expanding series of orbs. We're supposed to be fearful of some unknown creature getting closer, but we have no concept as to where it is or what it means or why everybody's so shocked at what they're seeing on their displays because we don't see anything at all except for a pulsing display. So the use of miniatures when you're actually outside of the ships is all too evident, and we never get a good sense of depth or space or scope given that we're supposed to feel a sense of fear and foreboding underneath thousands of feet of water. Now, one observation I will make, and I'm not saying that this film is better or worse because of it, but movies in general have many people in peril. In fact, that's really almost any thriller has somebody in jeopardy. We rarely get to see them performing something as simple and as honest as a genuine prayer for safety In real life, you probably would have many people who are devoutly religious do this, but it doesn't happen in films very often. So when it happens late in this film, when there's no hope in sight, it doesn't really add to the tension or terror. But I do think that this is a touch that does distinguish, at least in that moment, Deep Star 6 from many others that have covered the same ground. It's almost like a breath of fresh air, even though I'm not deeply devoutly religious per se. I do think that that was kind of an interesting touch I was not expecting for this kind of movie. Now, as far as the rest, it's all expected cliches, though. Cunningham does employ an identical post-climax jump scare to the same one he did in Friday the 13th. It had already become a cliche, really, in the post-fatal attraction era especially. And while the second time around for the monster proves ultimately fatal, Cunningham did envision that if this creature does die, the creature did have a family. So certainly that would come into play should there be any more sequels, similar to the way that Jaws kept doing sequels with different sharks, although potentially from the same family, one supposes. 
However, no sequels for Deep Star 6 would result. It really did not do that well at the box office. It debuted at a lowly number nine, and it made about $8 million overall. And if you remember, that was the budget. So if you factor in on top of that advertisement and the cost of making the reels and all of that stuff, it was a loser, unfortunately, financially. So if you do regularly feast on films on Sci-Fi Channel, I think that... This is in that vein. You might find enough enjoyment in going back to this similarly produced film done before the advent of rampant CG elements, I would say. It is not an abysmal film, but it also is a film that is not the abyss, even though it tried very valiantly to become one. So I would say the very best I could give for Deep Star 6 is two stars out of four. Two stars on my scale means that it is lacking something vital that keeps it from being a film that I could wholeheartedly recommend to most people. And that thing that it is lacking here is, unfortunately, characters that we come to care about. So by the time the monster hits, we're just watching a bunch of TV actors that we don't genuinely care about get dismantled by this creature. And we don't even see that happen very often because, you know, a lot of them are getting stuck in doors or drowning in water or whatnot. They aren't even going toe-to-toe with this creature. So in the end, it's kind of a disappointment in that way. And if you remember, I did give Leviathan also two stars. So which do I like better? That's kind of a common argument among people who know these two films. Leviathan or Deep Star 6? Am I a Leviathan person or a Deep Star 6? Well, I'm not really either. But if I had to choose one, I would say Leviathan is a film that has higher highs. It does have lower lows. But those higher highs are at least enough to make Leviathan an interesting movie, even though I consider it a bad movie. Whereas Deep Star 6, I just consider it to be kind of a mediocre film all the way through, and it never inspires me to get involved in any particular way throughout the course of this. So I would say of the two, Leviathan is the better one, though I give both two stars out of four. If you have your own thoughts on Deep Star 6 that you want to impart, you can write to me. You can find my contact information at my website. Let me know if you think Deep Star 6 is a better film than Leviathan. Maybe I'm wrong for a particular reason. You can write to me. You can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net. For next week, I'm going to be talking about one I consider better than both of these films. And if you know what I've been talking about for the last two episodes, you know I'm going to be talking about, of course, James Cameron's The Abyss. Also from 1989, came out in August of 1989, and that will be the film I talk about for next week. It's actually a film I've seen many, many times, which I'll be covering that for next week's episode. So check out James Cameron's The Abyss from 1989 if you want to keep up with the reviews as I get to them. And until next time, thank you so much for listening and joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies. (laughs) 